I'm just trying to tell stories about my efforts to transcend myself. And I think it's an important thing for all of us to do because I think humans tend to be extremely selfish and extremely self-absorbed and it's a tendency that we should be taught to counteract. So I'm just trying to do that in my own way. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Alison Bechtel is obsessed. Her passion? Exercise, karate, cycling, running, skiing in all its forms, to name a few of her pursuits. This obsession is the focus of Bechtel's new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. A book review in today's New York Times writes, quote, This is a true delight of graphic literature, and nobody does it better. You feel as if you're peering through a plexiglass panel right into Bechtel's marvelous brain. It is a nearly perfect book. Close quote. Bechtel is a former cartoonist laureate of Vermont and a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. She garnered a cult following with her early comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For. Her best-selling graphic memoir, Fun Home, was adapted into a Tony Award-winning musical. That memoir and musical tells the story of growing up in a family that ran a funeral home and how, after Bechtel came out as a lesbian, her closeted gay father died in what the family believes was a suicide. The cartoonist is also known for what is called the Bechtel test, which rates movies on whether they include at least one scene in which two women talk to each other about something other than men. Bechtel runs skis and bikes from her home in West Bolton, Vermont, which she shares with her partner, Holly Ray Taylor, who is the colorist for her new book. Alison Bechtel, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. I'm very happy to be here. When did you decide that the things you do for fun, that your passions, the things you do to get away from and clear your mind from cartooning and such, would be the subject of your cartooning? <laughs> I sort of worried for a while that that was a bad plan, like to take this one part of my life that was free of like overthinking and stress and to turn it into a project. Um, but I'm glad that I did it. I, I got the idea after finishing two memoirs in a row about my family that were kind of intense and, you know, hard work and a lot of involving a lot of internal, uh, excavation. And I thought this book would be sort of light and fun and quick. I thought it would be a project I could write fairly quickly, unlike the six or seven years each of these previous books had taken, but it didn't turn out to uh, work out that way. This book took even a little longer than those books. And uh, although it was fun in many ways, it was not light. It turned out to be more of a, you know, also a kind of excavation in a different way. Hmm. Um, well, that leads to, I guess, a, a line you have in uh, The Secret to Superhuman Strength is, and it's early on in the book, I'm not just writing about fitness. It's been a vehicle for me to something else. So tell us a little bit about what that something else is. I I learned pretty young when I was beginning to exercise that I could get a really nice feeling from working out from, in a sustained way. Like I, my busy everyday mind would quiet down. I would feel calm in a way that I don't typically feel. 
Um, and there's something for me about uh, getting outside of myself, outside of my own ego that happens often when I exercise. And then I wanted to explore. Um, I mean, I would tell people I was writing a fitness, a book about fitness, and they would look at me funny, like, that seems like an odd topic for you. But yeah, it's more about um, where fitness takes me and um, why I think that's important. Where does it take you? Well, I, you know, I'm a memoirist. I'm already somewhat obsessed with myself. And I feel like I, I do that. I write about my own life because I'm always trying to figure something out, some kind of deep old problem or, uh, I don't know. I feel, just feel like my, I've never had a very easy relationship with myself. <laughs> There's some, I always feel like everyone else knows what they're doing and I don't quite, uh, I don't quite have a handle on things. It's, you know, this is also something I've explored in my family memoirs in more detail than I even care to think about, but it's this curiosity about what, who myself is, what myself is. Um, it's just sort of an enduring question for me. And the more I learn about it, the more I, I see that it's getting beyond my own self I'm sorry, this sounds all very, very vague and mystical. And I, and I don't believe it really is. I feel like this whole, um, you know, the self really is something that can be explained quantum mechanically or, you know, in, in scientific ways, but I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so I just trying to tell stories about my, my efforts to transcend myself. And I think it's an important thing for all of us to do, because I think humans tend to be extremely selfish and extremely self-absorbed. And so it's a tendency that we should be taught early on to counteract. So I'm just trying to do that in my own way. Well, you mentioned you've written two other memoirs, um, Fun Home, um, Are You My Mother? So this is a third go at drawings from the same well, which is your life. Um, I'm amazed at each of your, you know, renditions of this, how I am always completely fascinated. And I think it's a story I've heard before. And yet you come at it from a completely different angle. But do you worry that um, you won't know how to tell this to go over that ground again in a fresh way? Um, yes, I do worry. And uh, this book, you know, I had to think about its relationship to those other books. Did did people need to know those stories before they read this book? And I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted to be able to, you know, have people just come to this book and enjoy it for its own sake. But on the other hand, if people had read the other books, they needed to somehow sort of account for them in this story. And I, I think I do that. I sort of, in a way, the, this book is also, it's a history, not just of my athletic uh adventures throughout my life, but also my, um, my creative life, like how I've pursued my creative work in the world, when I've had struggles with it, when it's come easily. So the act of making those earlier memoirs, those show up just as part of my story. Hmm. 
Well, let's get into a little of um, what you talk about in The Secret to Superhuman Strength. You ask at one point that in, in spite of um, some of the great critical acclaim, your earlier work, and especially Fun Home, having a memoir turned into a Broadway play that wins a bunch of Tony Awards, and uh, I know I loved it so I, with my family, um, but you write, where had my joy gone? So what was the other track going on for you as you were having this you know, professional success? Um, I have a complicated relationship to success. I mean, I, when I started being a cartoonist in the early eighties, um, it was very much as this marginal figure. I was, I was doing lesbian comics for alternative newspapers that no one had ever heard of. And, um, I liked that. I liked the fact that I was not only an outsider as a lesbian, but I was also an outsider as a, like cartoons were not cool, <laughs> not as cool as they are now back in the 80s. Um, you know, it's a very, a, a marginal art form. So I formed my identity as an artist as, as very much an outsider. So when I started crossing over, which happened sometime in the early 2000s, I would say, it was starting to happen before Fun Home came out, but when my memoir Fun Home came out, that sort of cemented it. Um, it was to, it was a very odd sensation to have people suddenly, um, I don't know, taking me seriously, including me in the conversation, uh, considering me, you know, a serious American cartoonist when I had been struggling for years to be recognized as that. Um, it was funny to have it suddenly get served up to me. Um, and I'm still... <laughs> you know, it's, now it's been 15 years and I'm still somehow trying to catch up uh, to this new stature. I mean, I was, I was the, the Vermont cartoonist laureate for three years, which I still can't even believe happened. How did that happen? Yes. Well, uh, and I remember when Dykes to Watch Out For was, you know, very much a cultish thing. People in the know knew about it and talked about it. And if you didn't know about it, it kind of signaled that you were really sort of not in that inner uh, circle of cool people. Um, so, um, well, one of the things you do in your current book is you relate your pursuit of the outdoors to the writings of Jack Kerouac and Ralph Waldo Emerson. What's the connection? Um, I often bring other writers' work into my memoir writing, just because I think it makes it more interesting. My own life is not as interesting as uh, other people's. So I, I loved Kerouac's book, The Dharma Bum. That's always been one of my favorite books because of the way he writes about exploring the backcountry and the Sierras with, um, with his pal, Gary Snyder, the poet. Uh, I'm not a huge Kerouac fan <laughs> apart from that. I just really have a soft spot for that book. Um, and the more I learned about Kerouac, the more I learned that he was inspired by the transcendentalists. I started researching the transcendentalists. I had actually already read a book about the amazing early 19th century feminist Margaret Fuller, who was a, a transcendentalist and a friend of Emerson's. Um, but and, I- And the, the great aunt of Buckminster Fuller? Is oh it? yeah, yeah, I love that connection. Yeah, Buckminster Fuller of uh, geodesic, dome, geodesic yeah. domes. 
and all, all kinds of other trendy uh, science ideas in the 70s, 60s and 70s. He was Margaret Fuller's great nephew. And he, he was very inspired by her idea that everything in the universe is somehow connected. Um, so, and those, those transcendentalists were total hippies. The more I learned about them, the more, you know, they were founding communes. They were, they had these radical race and gender politics. They're, you know, fighting slavery and fighting for women's suffrage and sending their kids to progressive schools. I, it was funny to me to imagine people doing that in the, you know, 1840s. Um, so that was interesting, just that that countercultural history. You know, I felt like, oh, these are my people, even though this was a long time ago. And then I, I also write in my book about the British romantics, Wordsworth and Coleridge, who were big influences on the American transcendentalists. So I started seeing this sort of chain of people all concerned with nature, all concerned with, you know, this relationship of their selves to nature and the outside world, people who were invested in some kind of progressive agenda in the world. And I just wanted to write about them. You also quote, and I love this throughout the book, um, the Zen master uh, Shunryu Suzuki. And you quote his, uh, him saying, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Um, which, of course, forced me to stop and meditate on that thought for a while, which uh, I suppose is very much uh, the effect he has on people. So talk <laughs> yeah. about what does Zen mean to you in the context of all your outdoor pursuits and why you keep coming back to Suzuki throughout the book? Um, when I first read Suzuki, I don't know, sometime back in my 30s, that that idea of beginner's mind just really resonated with me. I, I feel like all my life I have been trying to get back to the state I was in as a child when my own relationship to my creativity was so much easier. It was just like, it was just pleasure. I would just get lost drawing for hours on end uh, with no self-criticism, no fear of judgment, no ideas about what I was going to do with this, what, what my goals were. It was just I was just doing it because I liked it. Um, I feel very lucky to get to do for my adult job, you know, to earn my living doing the thing I did as a small child, but I would, I would still like to get back that sense of ease and, and bliss that I used to have. And that I, I, I occasionally have now, like in the middle of a deadline when I'm working very in a very focused way for a period. But um, I always have felt like, if I were really wise enough, if I really could like work at this enough, I could get back to that childhood state. Uh, so in a way, the book is my a record of my attempt to do that. Um, <laughs> I have not achieved it yet. I think I'm getting a little closer, but I haven't actually achieved it. But I love I, that's one of the things about Zen. As I, I have also, you know, been a sort of amateur student of Zen over these years. Um, I love the idea. That in, in Buddhism that we're already enlightened. It's just a matter of like uncovering that, rediscovering it. And that too seems to me like beginner's mind, like you, we, we possess it, it's in there. We just have to get back to it. I find that very compelling. Hmm. Um, of the activities that you describe, biking, running, skiing to me seems to be the thing where this Zen 
state really bears out where, you know, the harder you try, the harder it is, and the more you let go, the easier and more flowing it becomes. So talk about your relationship with skiing. You've It's been the school of hard knocks for you, but it, it is that for many of us, but uh, talk about skiing. I, I learned to do downhill skiing as a small kid with my family in central Pennsylvania, where I grew up, which was a really <clears throat> great thing. You know, I, it was, I loved being outside. I loved all the equipment. I loved the adventure of it. And I loved learning a physical skill. We didn't have like a lot of athletics for children like we do now. So this was my first experience as a kid at having any kind of training, you know, athletic training. And I really liked it. As a teenager, I became a little disenchanted with downhill skiing. It just seems so noisy and, you know, it relies on making snow and using all this energy. And that's when I discovered cross-country skiing. I found a book one day at the outdoor gear store that had just opened because uh, we didn't have those before. All this whole, you know, outdoor industry was just sort of emerging in the 70s when I was growing up. But I got very entranced with the idea of cross-country skiing. I got equipment, but in Pennsylvania, we rarely got enough snow to really ski properly. I would go out and, you know, stomp around in the slush. Um, but it really wasn't until I got to Vermont 16 years later in my early 30s that I was able to really learn to cross-country ski. I, I did ski all those years. I lived in Pennsylvania. I moved to Massachusetts. I lived in New York City. I would go skiing in Central Park whenever it snowed. I moved to Minnesota where I skied a lot, but um, I was in the city, so it was often on golf courses and stuff. But finally, I made my way to Vermont, which is another part of the story of the book. I feel like I've just, all, all my life until I turned 30, I had kind of wanted to go north. I wanted to live in New England specifically. And when I got a chance to come to Vermont, I leapt at it. And that's when I started really skiing a lot. Where are some of your favorite places to ski? Bolton. Um, you know, David, I feel I feel sort of like a piker talking to you about skiing because <laughs> I'm not I'm not really a hardcore skier. Uh, I don't do these serious backcountry routes that you write about. I fantasize about it, but I just never seem to really make the time. I, I, so I do a lot of skiing right at Bolton, you know, just staying there. I've, only once have I done, uh, I skied Bolton to traps once. Can you believe it? Once in like 30 years in Vermont, every winter, I swear I'm going to do it again, but I haven't yet. And once I had a great ski from Bolton on the Woodard Trail down to Little River State Park, which was great. But both of those times, I, I, I was doing it on my, my flimsy little track skis. I didn't, I, I was always someone who kind of skied on my own. So I didn't understand the equipment that you really need a different kind of equipment for backcountry skiing. So slowly I've gotten up to speed on that. Now I think it would be really fun to um, ski those routes on my proper equipment. Well, you've elevated suffering to a high art, uh, literally and figuratively. So I hope you uh, get to enjoy it on, on gear that makes it easier. And also, in fairness to yourself, you live in a place 
uh, you know, you live in the Bolton area where people travel for hours just to come there. So your backyard is, it's in true. fact, yes. um, you know, for you to ski in your backyard is where other people drive many hours to come ski. That's true. Yes. Um, well, back to your book. Um, one of the things that uh, is interesting and will strike fans of yours right away is that it's in color. It's the first time you've done your books in color. Um, why did you decide to do that? Well, it's so much a book about nature, you know, about going outside and ha having adventures and revelations outside. It seemed like I couldn't do that in black and white. <laughs> it really demanded color. Uh, I, I'm also not someone who has ever been very good at landscapes. Like I just always drew people and I preferred to draw people sitting inside <laughs> where I didn't have to draw trees or water. But this book involved a lot of nature scenes and I, I'm not great at them, but I did force myself to, you know, really take the plunge and uh, learn to draw trees. Uh, water is still very vexing. I cannot draw like the surface of a stream for the life of me. So explain a little bit of your process here because you worked together with your wife, Holly, on this. She did the coloring, is that right? Yes, yeah. My partner, Holly, helped me finish this book because I was not going to make my deadline. And she's an artist and has the skills to do this. And I've never collaborated. That's partly why I'm a cartoonist. It's something I can do all on my own. But in this case, I had to turn over this whole aspect of the process to her. Um, I would try and indicate what I thought the color should look like on a page. But over the course of doing this whole book, I kind of had to let go of that strict <laughs> control and really just trust her to do it. Uh, what was that like for the two of you? That That is a fraught um, terrain to navigate. That's a very good word. It was It was fraught. And we certainly had moments of, you know, testiness but in the end we we figured it out you know i relaxed and um it was really great to be instead of be being all like wrapped up in this project all by myself to be sharing it with someone was very really fun and mm. kind of it was kind of bearing out the theme of the book <laughs> one of the themes of the book is just you know understanding our interdependence with other people we're not self-sufficient you know I've always had a fantasy that I could just be, you know, not need other people, but I know that I do. And here was an example, you know, a very vivid example of how I needed some help. Um, your father's suicide is something that you keep circling back to in your work. Um, it was a big part of Fun Home, the story of your growing up and your family business, which was a funeral home. Um, and it comes up again here. And at one point in this book, you write about how, as a younger person, you were marveling at how well you were doing with your dad's death. Um, but then it kind of comes back when you least expected to. So talk about where you are now with that, what peace you've made with that to the degree one can make peace with such a thing. Huh, that's an interesting question. I you know, it's been a kind of funny journey for me because I, I 
did feel like I sort of exercised a lot of my my grief and negative feelings by writing about my father. Um, but then I had this unusual experience of having that book get turned into a, a musical, as you said, you know, this a musical on Broadway, which ran for like a year and a half. And I, I was very involved, not in the making of that show. I had no creative input, but I went to it. I was involved in doing a lot of publicity things. And I was seeing this story about my family a lot. And um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Um, it's been weird to have it just become this thing that's bigger than me or my my particular life. Uh, so and I guess in a way I feel um, kind of, it's a kind of odd disconnect. Like it, in a way it doesn't even feel like my story anymore. Um, not in a bad way, it just feels like um, it's just something out there in the world. Hmm. You also, write uh, candidly about uh, polyamory, um, how challenging it is and how maybe it's like sports in that it is constantly challenging, um, that, that maybe that's what drew you to it. Um, what is your thinking on it now? Uh, can it work? And what would you tell somebody who's considering it? What does it take for it to work? Well, in my experience, it it took a lot of processing, a lot of talking, which I hadn't anticipated. Um, I liked the idea of polyamory myself, not because I, I wanted to have multiple relationships. I just, I was happy to have one partner, but also a primary relationship with my work. This was the way I thought I could have that if, my, if I was involved with someone who was actually polyamorous and had multiple partners of her own, or at least one other partner, as was the case with So mean, meaning that your work would be your other partner? Yeah, my work was my other girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had spent many years in, you know, serial monogamous relationships and not, you know, and kind of failing because my work always got in the way. Just, I wasn't, I mean, I see now that this is crazy. <laughs> All of this is just, I, I was... I needed to learn how to manage my work life better, you know, but polyamory was an interesting experiment. And also it, to me, it felt like part of that transcending of the ego project that I'm so interested in. Like, why do we need to have just one partner who's everything to us? Why can't we, you know, get different things from different partners? Why, why is it so hard? And you, you are forced to constantly look at your own, selfish impulses in polyamory. And that was hard and educational and I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> now I am monogamous and it seems a lot simpler. But although I don't wanna, you know, I think it's a very worthy thing to embark on polyamory and try to figure it out. If you can do that, more power to you. Do you think it can work? Uh, this is something I often wonder, I mean, it, it is hard, and I, I feel like I, I hear more about how hard it is than how successful it is. Well, I think people who really, you know, who it's important to do make it happen, do make it work, but they're putting in the time. I mean, it's, it's all a question of how you want to spend your life. I mean, 
I spend my life drawing cartoons and uh, because I put a lot of time into it, it's, it works out. If I put that same amount of time into polyamorous relationships, that might've worked out too. Right. <laughs> um, we were talking earlier about uh, dykes to watch out for kind of the, the thing that uh, launched you, but launched you in this sort of countercultural sphere. What opened the doorway from the, you know, the fringe to the mainstream for you? Um, what do you, th what new ground were you breaking that caused this to catch fire? Uh, I don't think I was particularly opening new ground. I think that, you know, the culture was changing very much around me. And, you know, I suppose in a way, drawing my comic strip for all those years was part, was a part of that changing culture. You know, when I was young, my goal with my cartoon was to just show the world that lesbians were regular everyday people, which the world very much did not think in 1982 when I got started. You know, I was like equivalent to a, a pornographer or a, I don't know, you know, some kind of criminal. Um, but that really changed over time for, you know, there's just been a increasing acceptance of LGBTQ people and an increasing number of letters added to that acronym. Uh, you know, it's just a very different world now than it was when I came out in 1980. Um, now I forget what the question was. Well, I, the idea that we're in a different world, a different moment, um, and yet we're seeing states yet, around the yeah. country uh, uh, attacking, you know, putting transgender people under attack, stripping their rights, attacking kids, transgender kids. Um, has it changed yeah. that much? Well, I think, um, I think all, all these anti-trans laws that we're seeing are kind of, you know, a, a backlash to the progress we've had. I guess the older I get, the more I see that this progress backlash dynamic is just how, how things go. Um, but it's really important. I mean, like, you know, the, the, Republican right lost on gay marriage, you know, they, they lost that battle. And so now they've, they think they've found a new way to, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they, honestly, I don't know what they're trying to do, what they're thinking, what, what they're trying to protect. Um, but they just sort of keep getting more desperate. Hmm. And I hope it's, it seems like so far people are seeing through these anti-trans initiatives and I, I hope, I hope this all, all get defeated. Well, you are now in your uh, 60s. Um, what's your next big summit to climb? Um, I'm, I'm working, interestingly, on a project of turning dikes to watch out for, speaking of beginner's mind and going back to <laughs> something from one's youth, uh, I'm working on turning that into an animated show. I don't know if this will happen. It's like in the very early stages, but um, that's my current focus. And it it does feel like a bit of a mountain. It's funny to come back to it and try to figure out how to do it uh, for television. Like, you know, what a weird, I mean, I know television is different now than it used to be. There's so many little niche audiences for every imaginable, you know, interest, but 
even so, it would be a big, reaching a big audience. And I have to get my mind around that. Hmm. Um, and finally, you know, in looking through kind of the diversity of the work that you pursued, uh, what are you proudest of? Huh. Um, gosh, David, I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to separate any of my work out from any other parts. I feel like it's all just a constant evolution for me. It's all kind of of a piece. And I just, I'm proud that I've somehow, I somehow have managed to keep doing this and I hope I can keep it up for a while. Okay. Well, Alison Bechtel, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. Alison Bechtel is the former cartoonist laureate of Vermont and a MacArthur Fellow. Her new book is The Secret to Superhuman Strength, 